Amen. Amen. Don't you wish it were the day? Wouldn't that be great? Let's take our Bibles. And until that time, let's talk about the great God that we're serving and what he is planning to do as we turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I invite you to go there, please. Philippians chapter 2. As we heard about Jesus Christ and him coming back, I was thinking this week about that aspect from Philippians chapter 2, about greatness of Christ. And several years ago, they had a number of scholars, historians get together, and they put together 100 of the world's most famous, most important events of all history. Do you want to know what the number one was? Do you want to guess? Any idea what would be in the top few? Jesus isn't in the top few. What's that? The emancipation is going to be up there. Any others? Okay, I'm not even sure if it was up in that top few. Here's, here's what they did. The discovery of America, this was number one. Number two was the Gutenberg Press being invented. Number three, there was 11 items. I don't know what they were. Number four, the five-way tie was the writing of the Constitution, the development of ether for surgery, discovery of the x-ray, the first plane flight, and then Jesus Christ. In the world's point of view, Jesus Christ doesn't, he ranks in the top, but pretty much down quite a bit. To give you an idea, they, the family feud, you ever hear, watch the game? Okay, here they go. When it comes to mind, when you hear the king, what do, who do you think of? Okay, okay, so they said Burger King, okay? Then they said Martin Luther King. Then they said Jesus, and number one was? Yeah, yeah. Jesus Christ doesn't get top billing in the world, does he? And yet when you and I come to worship, we understand that according to scriptures, Jesus is the most important person who's ever lived. His life was the most important event in all of human history. That's why when you go through the Bible, you have a lot of different prophecies about him. You have four books that talk about his life. Then as they're writing the epistles, like we looked at last week, the last couple weeks, different epistles about Jesus Christ, it seems that the writers keep on going back when they start talking about Christian living, they always take it right back to Jesus. He becomes the centerpiece. And so we're in Philippians 2, after he's talked about, hey, you need to have joy in your life. I want you to be able to be kind one to another. He's compelled by the Spirit to go back and spend some time talking about Jesus in Philippians 2. He talks about who he is. He talks about what he did. He talks about where he's at right now. He talks about what he will do. And the reason is because so much impact of Jesus on our life. Now you look at those verses that we already read. Most scholars believe it was a hymn that the church sang on a regular basis. And it is loaded with the You look at those few verses and it talks about who Jesus is. This was last week's message. That Jesus is eternal God. He was equal with God. In those verses, in verses 7 and 8 that we read just moments ago, it talked about Jesus becoming a real man. How that Jesus gave up his privileges of deity, the glory, the honor, the worship. We talk in that passage about he gave up the freedom. He emptied himself of free will in the sense that he was going to be submissive to the Father. He gave up his own life even, dying for you and me. So the whole aspect of this passage is talking about the greatness of Jesus, who he came in all of his, despite all of his majesty and glory, to serve God and to serve others. So that tells us who he is, what he did. Now what we didn't talk about is verses 9, 10, 11 last week. So just to highlight those verses, you look at verse 9. 
It talks about where he's at now. It talks about God has hyper-exalted him. Highly exalted him. The idea that hyper-exalt is above everybody. Above everything. We know that what that's teaching us is that the idea he has resurrected from the grave. He has sent it up into heaven. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father. I didn't realize this. But there's over 80 references in the New Testament alone to Jesus being at the right hand of the Father. At this exalted position. We know that as well Jesus was highly exalted and it says in this verse that being lifted up he was given a name that is above every name. His glory was restored to him. His majesty, his honor, his worship was once again given back to him and now he has power and authority over all creation, all beings. Then it goes on in the next verses and the next stanza of the musical song talks about Jesus, which we know he's our God, he's alive today, he's ruling in heaven right now, we know he's above us all, we understand he is to be our master and Lord, we know that he is always with us, so we have that in mind because he's in heaven, because where he's at. And then he says, okay, he's also going to have an impact in our future, what he'll do in the future. It talks about Jesus having this, this idea of judging us all that everyone will one day agree. They will confess that he is the Savior, he is Messiah, he is the Lord, another title used in the Old Testament uh, for the idea of Yahweh. Adonai is sometimes translated, Yahweh is sometimes translated Adonai in the Septuagint. And so the idea that he is God. Everyone is going to confess that. Not only will they confess that, but what else does it say about everyone? Everyone is going to do what before Jesus? They're going to bow the knee. Okay? Everything in earth, in heaven, the angels, the demonic world, those in the underworld, those who are alive, everybody is going to bow before him. And so we know that his greatness, this passage is all about how majestic he is, that all of us are going to give an account to him. We are not our own bosses. We're going to answer to him. He is a, a before us. And we know as believers... This is the Bema seat. Now, if you're not a believer, you're still going to answer to Jesus Christ one day. You will one day confess he is the Savior. He is God. He is Lord. Everyone will admit that one time in the future. And you don't want to be admitting that when he is your judge judging you for your sins. You want your sins forgiven ahead of time. You want to already have Christ's forgiveness, his grace, his mercy upon you before you have that judgment. Now those of us who have believed in him, we're going to have a judgment as well. And it's going to be for our rewards, rewarding us for our labors because we served him. And we're going to say, he is Lord, he is master, and give him glory. In fact, what do we do with all of our crowns that he gives us for rewards? We're going to cast them back at his feet. Because we know and understand how majestic he is. With all of that, then we notice the next couple verses. Wherefore, my beloved. So he's given us this song with rich theology. He started it off with, hey, because of how great Jesus is and humbled himself, you should look out on others first rather than upon yourself. Then after he gives that greatness about Christ, he says, wherefore, how does this apply to your life? Because of the greatness of Jesus, and we can have all the theology, and it's grand, and it's glorious, but if it doesn't impact our life, what good is theology? What good is belief if it doesn't affect behavior? What good is creed if it doesn't affect our conduct? 
Wherefore, my beloved, and what he does now in the next couple of verses, based upon your understanding that you are going to answer to Jesus, he's in heaven right now, he is helping us, he is all-powerful, what should we do? He gives us three different ideas in the next few verses. I'm going to start with this one. We should be energetic. Then the number two is we should be enthusiastic. Then number three is we should be evangelistic. He starts off in, the next, in that next phrase, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Interesting passage. Tremendous. That phrase, work out your own salvation, is the imperative. It is the command in the passage. And uh, unfortunately, there are many people who confuse this, this phrase. They think he is saying, work for your salvation. That's not what it says at all. He isn't saying you and I have to work in order to get saved. That's what I grew up believing. That's what some of you in different churches grew up believing. You have to get baptized, catechized, do different things, do the commandments, give money, be, uh, be charitable in order to get to heaven. Now, the Bible never teaches that. It teaches that those who are on their way to heaven already, they will have that desire to get baptized, to learn the word of God, to be able to be charitable, etc., etc. But I know for a fact he's not commanding in this verse, you do enough good works to get yourself to heaven for three reasons. Number one reason in this text is no one is ever saved by good works. None of us gets to heaven by our good works. The Bible makes it very clear. It says, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is not the good that we do that gets us into heaven. It's the good that Jesus did. Okay, for it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. He wrote in another epistle, not by the works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration renewing of the Holy Ghost. When we come to communion this morning, we are celebrating the fact that Jesus gave his life, he shed his blood, he let his body be abused in order to pay for our forgiveness. We are going to get to heaven because he paid the price for our sins, punishment. He did the work. We come and we believe, and we simply believe. We don't deserve his grace. We don't deserve the good gift. But if we come in belief, in repentance, he will give us the gift of eternal life. And it's all about Jesus. He has done it all. He has paid it all. So number one reason it can't be work for your salvation is the Bible teaches something totally different. Number two is these people are saved already. Because he says, my beloved, those of you who are loved by God. In fact, if you go back to the first chapter and you watch what he says in that first chapter, he makes that comment. He says, to the saints in Jesus Christ, those who are already forgiven, who have been declared holy or innocent, forgiven of their sins. Number three reason in this text is because salvation is a one-time experience. It isn't something that you do over and over and over again. It happens one time. That's why Jesus said you must be born again. Just like you were born physically one time, you must be born spiritually one time in your life. There's got to be a historic moment in your life where you were birthed into God's family. And so this text cannot be worked for your salvation because in this text the idea is keep on working out your salvation. It's a constant, every day. And so what we know from this text is we have a command, and this is for every single believer. It's plural. 
my beloved, all of you who are loved by God, all of you need to do this. Be energetic in the sense that you are working out, you are bringing to completion that which God desires for you. It is the idea in ancient Near Eastern countries. It was used for somebody who had a mine. They had an ore mine or a silver mine or a gold mine. If you had a mine, what would you do? Would you say, hey, I've got a mine. I'm rich. Wouldn't do you any good unless you, you mined it. You went in and you dug it out and you got everything out of there. That's the idea of work out. It's mine it to its completion. It was used in farming. Farming is the idea of doing what? Planting, the, getting the ground ready, planting, and then harvesting and bringing in the crops. It's incomplete if you just said, okay, I'm just going to go out there and work the ground and never planted seed and never, never worked at harvesting the crop. He says, no, what you need to do is bring it to its harvest. You need to work. You need to give effort. That's being energetic. Being energetic, in other words, is bringing about all that God has intended in your life. All that God wants in your life. It is the idea of you and I cooperating with God as he is operating within us. That we are doing our part because he is working in us. He has his spirit in us and we're energetic. Though he provided all the grace, he's given all the forgiveness, he's given us new life, we are putting effort into the growth product. We are working hard at it. It is the idea of working out salvation is the idea of obeying. It is the idea of doing his good pleasure. You see those words show up in this text. It is all the same kind of concept. Work out, obey the word of God, do what is for the glory of God in your life. In other words, what he's telling us is each and every one of us can be an obedient, spiritual believer. Don't sit here and say, well, that's not for me. If you're a born-again Christian, this is for you. This is what you can be. You can be a Christian who is becoming obedient and growing into a spiritual Christian. Now, a lot of the individuals in Scripture, they didn't, they didn't energize. They didn't put effort into it, like the Corinthians. They put their activity and energy into arguing and trying to get more money and trying to entertain their own pleasures. And he writes to them and says, some of you are carnal, fleshly. Only a few of you are spiritual, really focusing on that which is obedience and seeking the pleasure of God's will in your life. In other words, working out your salvation. And so what he's telling us is that it is possible for each and every one of us because of verse 13. God is doing something in every single one of us who is born again. It says that God is working in us, energizing us. So that we would both want to and we can do his good pleasure. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you have experienced this. Where God has put a desire in your heart to really work at loving your family. Some of you have had this experience where all of a sudden you, you struggled with some habit, some addiction. But God has put a desire in your heart to get rid of that. To learn to rely upon him. And he's given you the ability to overcome. And be able to do his good pleasure, pleasure and be obedient. If I can illustrate it this way. Okay. It's the idea that God is making, giving us the ability to be obedient and to be spiritual. Like somebody who is involved in music. 
Some of you play instruments. Some of us play radio. Okay, so those of you who play instruments. Okay, most of you, I may be mistaken, maybe, maybe I'm totally off, off guard here, but I don't think most of you are composing your own music and writing out the words, the music, the songs. For most of you who play music, you already have something that's been created, something that's been organized, something that's been put together with the, the notes and the timing and the rhythm and the music. And you put it on your piano and you play. But even what you're playing, you have to work at, you have to practice at. But somebody else has provided the course, the poem, the, the, the directions. In the same way, God has given you a composition for your life. He has put it all together. But you and I need to practice so that we put energy into learning to play this so it accomplishes exactly what he designed. Let me see if I can illustrate it in another silly way. Have you ever been in airports and walked on those wonderful moving walkways? When you get on them, what happens? You, you could just stand there if you want, and you can just wave at the others who are walking in the, in the terminal. But if you're really in a hurry, what's really wonderful, you can run down those walkways, and you look like that old commercial of the guy running through the airport, jumping over everything. And you look really speedy, even if you're slow and fat like me. You can all of a sudden get on these things and move. But the worst thing is in your, if you're in a hurry and get on one of those walkways, and what's the worst thing? No, no, no. That, 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 okay, that might be the end of it. <laughs> Somebody is just standing there yammering and blocking your way. And it's like, get out of the way. If you want to just stand and walk, get on the aisle. You know, just move. This, in this way, okay, in this way, God is the energy moving along. But if you really want to, if you want, you can just stand there. You can just do nothing. And you, you grow ever so little. Or you can apply your energy and you can really move. That's what God is doing. He is walkwaying you. He is compositioning how you should live. He is energizing, putting it all together for you as if you put effort to it, you will become an obedient spiritual Christian. In other words, you have to put some personal effort into this. You, you just can't come and then just hear the word of God and not be a doer of the word of God. You have to be energetic to grow in your Christian life. In fact, he makes it very clear that this involves every one of us putting some energy. I'm not going to grow spiritually just because my wife reads the Bible. I'm not going to grow spiritually just because you guys pray. That's not going to help me. I have got to be in the Word of God. I've got to pray for myself. I have got to, it, it's not going to help me for you to work on thinking and bringing into captivity your thought patterns, which you should be doing. But that doesn't do anything for me of overcoming the, the evil thoughts or the angry thoughts. I've got to apply to my own heart the Word of God, the disciplines. In fact, I have different struggles than you do. And so this is something that God does a great work in each of our lives, helping us to grow in the areas that we need to grow in. It's very personal. You work out your salvation as it applies to you in your life. And so you don't, you don't, you don't want to do this. 
You don't want to go and compare yourself to other people and say, well, I'm better than them. Okay, those who compare themselves with others are foolish. And so this applies to you and me. In fact, the idea is keep on doing this every day, every week. We begin a new year. Some of you have grown tremendously in the past year. COVID has been a blessing to you. And it has challenged you and tried you to really work on trusting the Lord. And it has, it has benefited you spiritually. But you've got to keep on working. In fact, he makes this comment. He says, you have obeyed in the past. Okay? But you still have to obey. No matter what you've done in the past, you've still got to be energetic. No matter how many weeks and months you've been saved, you've still got to be energetic. The, the saddest thing that, that it re, is repeated time and time again is Christians, as they get older... And they hit the years when they can retire from other things is they retire from growing spiritually. It ought not to be that way. Oh, now that my kids are out of the house, I don't have to work at my spiritual life. Are you kidding? I still have to work at reading and praying and, and keeping my, my own flesh in control. Not just because the kids are there, but because God is watching. God is up above I'm serving God. I wasn't, I wasn't being spiritual for, the, for just the sake of my kids. I'm supposed to be being spiritual for the pleasure of God. And so we need to keep on working at it. We need to keep on giving effort. Okay, New Year's resolutions. Common resolution, I'm going to start working out. Okay? Yeah, I'm going to do this. Do you realize that in the past couple of years, 86 million Americans purchase an annual gym membership? That's a lot. That's a big industry. And yet, of those people who spend $28.5 billion a year in gym memberships, do you realize that around 7% will never even go to the gym at all? But they purchased a membership. But do you want to know the, the most shocking part? Is that by, you buy it in January, within two to three months the number all of a sudden 75% stopped going. That means the majority of people who buy memberships, it's good for the industry because they don't have to service the majority of those people. What's it like in the Christian realm? Those who start off the year saying, I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to pray, I'm going to be faithful, I'm going to share the gospel. Do they follow through? Let, let, let's ask the question, do you? Have you? Because Christ is still on the throne, he is so, so important. We all know about couch potatoes, but the worst one is the pew potato. It's the individual who shows up on Sunday morning, takes, but gives nothing back to the body. Takes, but doesn't do anything during the week. But the Word of God says, I give so that you can minister to others, so you can, so you can and help others to grow, so you can share the Word of God. I am not building you. I am not investing in you, God would say, just so you can be a pew potato. He wants you to work out your own salvation, which the whole paragraph started being mindful of other people. So what we have here is a challenge. That no matter how much time goes by, no matter what you've done in the past, God is watching. He says, not just in my presence, but in my absence. You need to keep on working out. You need to keep on doing it. It's true. 
that some people work harder when the boss shows up. It's true that some people will go to work if they know the boss is there, and if the boss isn't there, they don't show up. It's true that some people, they are motivated just by the eyeballs of somebody else. In fact, does this cause your driving to change? <laughs> the, cha the, the reality is, we, it, it does for all of us. When we're driving down the road, and all of a sudden you see the police car parked by the side of the road, what's your initial response? Okay, yep. Okay. Because they're watching. Okay. The reality of this text is, Jesus Christ, wherefore my beloved, he's in heaven. He's watching. You're going to answer to him. He's going to, he's going to make us give an account one day. Therefore, keep on doing because I'm watching you. No matter what the circumstances. Look at verse 15. He says, wherefore my beloved, you are in the midst of a, of a perverse, a crooked world. Anybody feel like this is written to 2022? Okay. He says, you're in the midst of that. I still expect you to be obedient. I expect you to work out your salvation to bring glory to God, the pleasure of God. No matter what. But then he says, you got to do this with fear and trembling. Do not misunderstand this verse. It doesn't mean, ooh, I'm afraid that God's going to whack me. That's not what it means at all. In fact, we read multiple times that idea of fear and trembling. It is, we don't read it this way, but uh, I was doing this this morning. I was changing a couple of these bulbs, and that one went out again. Okay? Now, sometimes when we're changing bulbs, what happens, and I think this one's ready to do it, is when we unscrew it, the bulb will come away and the socket will stay up there. Okay? So what do you do with fear and trembling? I'm not going up there. I'm not sticking my hand up in that socket to unscrew it. I'm getting Tony. And he's going to go up that ladder. Okay? Which is the normal thing when that happens. He crawls up the ladder. But even he does something. Turn the power off. You turn the power. You respect the electricity, yes? Okay, I fear the respect of the, and tremble with the, so I don't tremble. Okay, I fear and respect the electricity. But that doesn't mean I don't want to use it. That doesn't mean I, it's not beneficial. I'm just going to have a healthy respect. That's exactly what this passage is talking about. That it's not that we're paralyzed by fear and phobia, but rather we serve the Lord with respect for who he is. And we, we rejoice with trembling in the sense that he is bigger than us. He is mightier than us. He is the one that we're going to do what with our knees one day? We're going to bow to him. And so it involves that idea of a reverential concern. I don't want to offend God. I don't want to spend my energies doing things which God would be displeased with. But rather, we have a, want to spend our energies anxiously doing what is right. Rather, what we want to do is we want to serve God in a way that pleases him. We don't even want to take communion in the wrong way with fear and trembling, that if we abuse communion, what might we bring to ourselves? Yeah, God's chastisement. And so what we want to do is we want to say, okay, with fear and trembling, I understand that his commandments, we don't take them lightly. And so I want to be energetic in the sense that I want to serve the Lord and put effort into serving the Lord and not just be a Sunday morning, go to church, and then live my life and it makes no impact. Rather, we want to work out our salvation. So we ask this question. 
Are you even sure you have salvation? Do you even know you're going to heaven? Are you confident? Like the Bible says, these things have written unto you that believe that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you know with confidence that you even have salvation? That should be where you start the new year. You want to, get, you want to make sure you have salvation. That you are a believer in Jesus Christ, putting faith and trust in him, asking him to forgive you of your sins and giving you the gift of eternal life. But let's take it a step further. The first step of obeying and doing his good pleasure is being baptized. Have you bothered doing that? If he is master and Lord, this is what you should be doing. What about this past year? What about other areas of virtuous activity? Have you put energy into something like forgiving people? And working to resolve a conflict with others? Have you put energy into praying and fasting, and even, and even putting that effort into expanding your prayer time, okay? Have you actually put energy into reading the Bible beyond Sunday school or here? Have you put energy into making sure your speech is holy and pure? Have you put energy into working honestly and dependably at work? Have you put energy into taking on a ministry, contributing to the body of Christ that you have opportunity to serve in? Are you one who has taken time in 2021 to try to share the gospel personally, to put energy into giving out the word of God? Okay, this text comes from a book that's all about having joy in your life. And as he talks about having joy, he says, we got to look at Jesus Christ. To have real joy, we have to have a right relationship with him. And once we have a right relationship, what we're going to do is we're going to say, hey, what I want to do is I want to be energetic for him. But I want to be enthusiastic. I also want to be enthusiastic. Second command in the text, verse 14. Second command that shows up. It's very simple. It says, do all things without what? That didn't sound like you were convinced. Okay. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. Okay, figure it out, what it means. Okay, the idea here is, and they're plural. Catch that it's not just once in a while. It's the idea that we are complaining. We're upset over circumstances. We don't like something. Has this ever happened in COVID? Okay, disputings is the word dialogue. It's the idea to argue. And in this argument, in this discussion, it's the idea between you and God. That you are, you are having a discussion and not wanting to say, thy will be done, not mine. And rather you want to work his good pleasure and be obedient to him. He says, so what I want you to do is I want you to work on your attitude. Okay? And, and attitude's key in this book. Rejoice, and again I say rejoice. I have learned to be content in all things, whatsoever state I'm at. And so he says, here's something that you Christians need to work on. We Christians. We need to work on being enthusiastic and not having murmurings, not having disputings, but rather what we're going to do is say, okay, as I serve the Lord, as I go through raising the family, as I go to doing my job, as I go through the trials that God says are good for me, I'm going to work at having the right attitude. 
the, the idea of saying whatever it is at all times, not just after a Sunday service, but also on Monday morning. Also when it comes to the middle of the week, the, the you know, hump day. The idea of having the right attitude. And the reason is God's commands. God's commands to us. What God is doing in our heart, it isn't bad. It isn't burdensome. In fact, he wrote these words. By this we know that we love the children of God and we love God when we keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not painful. They are not they are not bad for us. They are not grievous. Getting, for instance, getting baptized is not a chore. It should be a delight for a believer that they can confess. Get, having time in prayer should not be, ugh, I got to pray so I can get my TNT points. No, it should be a delight to talk to your creator. Reading his word. Obey, loving your family, forgiving somebody, it's difficult. It can be challenging, but it's not grievous and painful. It's, it's good for us to be able to do it. So the question comes, what is your, this is for me, when I say your, I ask myself this. What is our tendency when it comes to words and actions? I already know from this text. Our tendency is to murmur and complain. Our, 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 that's our tendency. Otherwise, he wouldn't be talking about it as, as to the believers. It's there. It's an issue. He wouldn't have to say rejoice, and again, again I say start rejoicing. You know, it, it's an issue. So then you have to be real personal. What is it? What is your attitude when you have to get up to go to the job that God has given you? Is it murmurings and disputings? What is it when you have to come to church for worship? <sighs> He's going to go along again. That's true. Okay, that's true. What's your attitude about worship? What is your attitude about Bible reading? What is your attitude when somebody asks you to help them? What is your attitude when we bring up the idea of visiting a shut-in? What is your attitude? Murmurings, disputings with God that this isn't that important? When he says this is pure and undefiled religion to visit the widows? And you argue with him? What is your attitude when something doesn't go your way at work? What is your attitude when somebody upsets you? What, what, what's your attitude? When all of a sudden your plans change. This is really cool. This, was really, this is me. This isn't you. But last two weeks we had the possibility and we had mentioned that my family as well as some of the other staff may have been exposed to COVID. And when we heard that, my first thought was, we're not going to get together for Christmas. The kids that are traveling, we can't do this. I wasn't a happy camper. To think that our Christmas, our one time of the year to get together, is gone. And immediately, immediately, the Spirit of God brought to mind the message I was going to preach on Christmas Eve with the idea that in the fullness of time, God's timing is always right. And immediately I said, be quiet, Spirit of God. I just want to sulk and feel sorry. Now, I'm the only one in the room that would ever do that. Right? Yeah. I'm so glad you agree. Okay. But what is your attitude? 
when plans are, what, what's your attitude when you go to the mailbox, unexpected bill? Praise God, another one! Okay. I'm not saying get silly, but what is your attitude when a trial enters into your family? The murmurings, the disputings? I know it's difficult. Or is your attitude, I'm going to seek to be obedient, to in some, some way count it all joy? Because that's what God commands me? I, I don't know. None of you probably ever struggled with this. But our kids disobeyed a lot when they were little. I should qualify that. When they were little and we were training them. I felt at times, oh, not again. Can't we put them back where they came from? <laughs> and yet at the same time, this is a means of training and discipling them. Investing in them. And instead of complaining about it, do the job that God wants us to do. It's the idea of enthusiasm that Jesus had. Did Jesus ever have a bad day? What I mean by that, does he, did he ever have a busy day? Yes, no? Okay. Did Jesus ever have people pick on him? Okay. So did he ever have things, his disciples disappoint him? Yes. So did he quit? What was his attitude about doing the will of God? He says, I delight to do your will. My meat is to do the will of the Father that sent me. All that bear him one witness wondered at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. Not my will, but thine be done. If we're going to be Christ-like, we've got to have an enthusiasm to doing the will of God. An internal enthusiasm that says, I'm not going to complain, I'm not going to be bitter, I'm not going to be angry, I, I may need to be, have a lot more prayer, but God, I'm going to work at my attitude. The Apostle Paul, the first time he visited the city of Philippi, where did he end up? What did he do in jail? He sang praises to God. Okay, where's he writing this letter from? From jail. He's writing from jail once again. The guy's a jail bird. He just kept on going. What's his attitude? You look at verses, one, uh, verses 3 and 4 in chapter 1. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. You know what? A lot of us would say, I am jealous of you who aren't in prison. I am bitter towards you who are in prison. Because I'm in prison because of you people. Sharing the gospel with you. And he says, nope. I thank my God upon every... He's thankful even in prison. In fact, he makes this comment, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, and he says, I have learned in whatsoever state I am to be content. To be content. He worked on... By the way, he learned it. He worked on enthousi being enthusiastic. That was part of his energy being energetic, to work on being enthusiastic. The fellow was writing about his account. They go to Disney World, and everybody's happy in Disney World. Yes? Okay. Everybody's, you know, they're there, they're having a, they're there for their family vacation, and he says, I'm there with my family, and it's a hot, humid day. And we're all getting tired. And the lines are growing. Every line we go to seems to grow by another hour and he says, we were just getting miserable. And my, he said, my wife and I and our four kids were starting to just complain and complain and complain, 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 complain. And he says, then we saw him. We saw this family go by. 
The dad's pushing a wheelchair of a, of a young man who's totally an invalid. And as dad is pushing the wheelchair, this young man who's a total invalid, he is smiling, and mom and the other siblings, they are having a blast. They are enjoying themselves in the heat, and all the others, and I know some of you are going to say they could get at the front of the line, okay, for rides. That's not the point. The point is this, is the man wrote, and he said, Suddenly I saw the contrast between my own family, healthy, with children, with strong legs, and the other family, a handicapped child. We were complaining and being miserable while they were having a great time. With so many things for us to be thankful for in comparison, how easy it is to forget them all in the moment. Work on being energetic, Work on being enthusiastic. Work on being evangelistic. It isn't a command, but it is the hosta. It is the result of being energetic, being enthusiastic. Here's what you're going to do. We already read some of it, but starting with verse 15, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you are shining as lights in the world while holding forth the word of life. What's he talking about there? What's he mean about this? He's describing where we live. We believers, we live in a world that is twisted and permanently distorted. Would you agree that that represents or describes where we live today? A culture that's twisted? Yes? Okay. In other words, we are surrounded by a corrupt world. It is there. A world that is in spiritual darkness. And what's he tell us to do? He tells us, not by command, but by implication, he says, you are to be shining as lights. You are to be holding forth is this idea of raising a banner. You and I would call it a billboard in modern days. And we would be holding forth a billboard that is talking about the word of life. Who is, what is the billboard of the word of life? Who are we promoting? Who are we advertising? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. In other words, we're to be a placard. We're going to be a beacon for Jesus Christ. We understand that the light isn't something we generate. It's a reflection of Christ in us. We understand that we're supposed to be here, giving out the word of God in the midst of this perverse and crooked world, which teaches me this. Christ in heaven, with all of his restored glory, he is still concerned about people here hearing the gospel. He wants others to hear of his story. He wants others to come to meet him so that when they bow the knee, they're doing it as believers, not unbelievers. Jesus is concerned about the lost. And when he sees them from heaven, he sees them as souls that will be condemned without grace if they don't call upon him. When we look at souls around us, what do we see? When we look at crowds, what do we see? When we all of a sudden run into people, is it they're a customer? They're a potential client? They're somebody that can help me advance my education or make more money? Or do we look and say, it's a big crowd and they're bothersome to me? 
and I don't want to be in a big crowd? Or do we just ignore people? Maybe what we need to do is stop right now and focus on saying, I need to think and to, to look at people the way Christ did. That they are souls in need of salvation, first and foremost. Before they need my help as a teammate, before they need my help and expertise as a business person, before they need my guidance and help as somebody to give them a, a, a hand as a neighbor, I need to remember they're a soul. They're a soul that needs Jesus Christ. And my job in this world, while I am being a good teammate and being a good, good worker and being a good neighbor, my goal is to expose them to Jesus Christ. To be a placard for Christ. To be a light for Jesus Christ. Which brings us back to saying, hey, wait a minute. If we're going to effectively share the word and be a light that is bright, then what does this text tell us? This text tells us that what we need to do is be blameless, be harmless, without rebuke while we're living in this world. We've got to have some contact with them. What it, what it implies is we cannot isolate and create our own little commune that blocks out the world and has no contact ever with the lost. We have got to take the light where the darkness is to be most effective. Do I have to participate in what? The, well, that's what the text clearly says. No. The text clearly says that we need to be different from the world. The, the words for blameless is they can't accuse you of things. The word harmless is of medicine that's, that's really good. It's not harmful. It's not mixed. It, it doesn't put two things together that don't go together. It, the idea here of the sons of God without rebuke is that whole idea that, that they can't come to you and make something stick like Velcro. It is that you're living in a way that you have integrity. You're living in a way that you have consistency. You're living in a way that your words reflect Christ, not the world, and not the arguing and the murmurings. And what he's challenging of us is that if we want to make sure our light is effective to reach into the hearts of people, we have got to be individuals who are different and Christ-like. Let me put it this way, okay? We need to be honest at school and at work. You can't be a liar or a cheater and then give out tracts. You've got to be one that your speech is pure and upright. Not cursing, not cussing, not vulgar, and then saying, you need Jesus. You've got to be an individual that doesn't steal. You don't con others. You don't cheat others in the business deal. And then tell them, you need to be like me. You've got to be one that's careful to what you, how you act, how you dress, how you talk, how you play sports. You've got to be an individual that you are in control when you are reacting to events around you. We, we cannot lose it and go into tirades about things that, are, that we can't control. We, we need to be showing confidence and trusting God, even in the midst of covid we got to be individuals who handle trials in a good way. We've got to treat even our enemies the way Christ did. We've got to be individuals who realize that the negative attitude he just talked about 
A negative attitude destroys your witness. Who wants to be like a grumpy Christian? We got to understand that a worldly lifestyle destroys your witness. That's where this all leads up to. This whole idea of being energetic, being enthusiastic, so that you can become evangelistic. That's what Christ is sitting on the throne. That's what he wants. We don't want to be like the lady that I told you about before. She comes to, she's driving down the street, and this gal is, you know, she's this wonderful Christian on Sunday. Goes to church. In fact, on the back of her car, she has, Hunk, if you love Jesus. She has, Jesus is my co-pilot. Follow me to church. All the different things, stickers you can put on your back of your car. But she's driving down the, the, the road, and as she does, some guy cuts her off. She starts blaring the horn. She starts yelling. And when they come up to the stop sign, she sticks her head out the window, and she's yelling, including obscenities, at this driver who cut her off. She turns the corner, and right behind her was a police car who turns the corner and flashes the lights and pulls her over. She is now mad at the cop. What did you stop me for? I didn't do anything wrong. And there's two of them. They said, ma'am, you need to get out of the car and get out now. She gets out of the car, and they said, ma'am, we, we're thinking of placing you under arrest. And there's this thing going on for a while. And finally, after they look at the paperwork, and they call back into the station, and they get everything squared away, and she's really ticked. She's really upset. You didn't need to stop me. He says, ma'am, I'll tell you the reason we stopped you. We looked at what was all over the back end of your car. And then we looked at how you were acting, and we heard the things you were saying out the window. We thought for sure you stole the car. Because nobody with all that kind of bumper stickers should act the way you acted as a driver. So the next time I'm driving, I want to be careful. Because people do watch. They do catch your attitude. They do, and most of all, Jesus Christ is watching. He is in heaven watching he has promised to be with you everywhere you take the gospel. He has promised to reward you when you take the gospel. He's going to judge those who reject the gospel that you give them. That alone should tell us to be evangelistic in 2022. To purpose, every one of us to purpose to share the gospel this year. To actually share it with somebody we know. Now you sit back and go, wow, this is going to be tough. This is going to be really difficult. Buzz the kids, please. This is going to be really difficult to do. A little boy was out selling cookies. And he ran into this one man who said, Hey boy, what are you doing? I'm selling cookies. Well, what are you going to do with all the money that you, that you sell the cookies? He says, I am going to raise a million dollars and I'm going to feed a whole bunch of hungry kids around the world. The man laughed and said, You think you're going to do this all by yourself? The little boy about age eight says, no, my little brother of four is helping me. The kid had an enthusiastic spirit, an energetic spirit. He had the idea of getting something going. Don't know if he ever achieved his goal, but I do admire his attitude of saying, I have help. Listen, my friend, you have somebody bigger than a four-year-old helping you. You have Jesus Christ. He's helping you to be energetic to be enthusiastic, to be evangelistic. In fact, Paul wraps up and says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So can you.
We come to communion this morning. And when we come here this morning, we're celebrating the idea that Jesus Christ has done so much for us. If you're here this morning and you do not know Christ as your Savior, before we go to communion, I would encourage you to go meet our staff who are going to go by that door right now. And while we sing a couple songs getting ready for communion, you're welcome to go up, to go out and meet those individuals. Let's make it even easier. Let's go to the back door. Let's go to the back door. That way it's a little bit more private for you if you need to step out. And uh, they'll, they'll take the Bible. They'll show you. So you can be sure. Now if you're here this morning and you do not want to participate in our communion, we're going to sing a couple songs. You are welcome. We'll understand. If you choose to leave, that's fine. We thank you for being here. But for those of us who are going to take communion to kick off this new year, I would encourage you that as we take this communion this morning that we remember what we've just heard. This is about Christ enthusiastically worshiping him, understanding he wants us to share his word, understand that we're to be energetic. In fact, he writes in 1 Corinthians 11, if you shut up your Bible, would you open it again and go with me before we start singing? In 1 Corinthians 11, he says about the communion service, starting with verse 23, I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of... It's all about Christ. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink, drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. Then he warns us, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord in an unworthy fashion, disrespectful, complaining, just not caring, shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. No fear, no trembling. Let a man examine himself, so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh, and he says it again, in an unworthy fashion, eats and drinks, disciplined to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And then he goes on, he says, that's why some of you are sick, weak, and some are even dead, because they abused this service. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. This is a serious service. It's a service of thanksgiving. It's a service where we want to honor Christ. It's not a service that we're timing and saying, let's get out of here quickly. It's a service where we're giving praise to the Lord and we're thinking about what he has done. If you need to talk to somebody and want to make things right between you and the Lord, feel free to step out and talk to one of the staff. They're standing by the back door. They'll gladly help you out. But for those of us who are ready, let's prepare our hearts a little bit more. Let's do some singing about that old rugged cross. <laughs>